Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have already been at work this morning. Before we showed up, as we gathered and started singing, as we're sharing with one another, and now as we come to your word, you have already been, I pray, ministering to us. May you continue, Lord. May you take your word and may you plant it down deep in our hearts, I pray, that your fruit may grow, that we may become more like you this morning because we've been in your presence, that we would leave this place different people that walked in. God, that people at lunch who see us would go, whoa, what happened to you? And that sounds crazy, but God, we cannot be in your presence and remain the same. I don't believe that's possible. So come, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit and your presence on this time. Be glorified and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing on uh, in a series we started last week called Stuck. Uh, Started last week by saying, you know, as I've been having conversations with a lot of people in our church, uh, there's some similar themes that I've been noticing as I talk with them. Themes that keep using words like heaviness. Life is just heavy right now. There's this this darkness that, not necessarily an evil kind of darkness, but just the colors seem a little turned down in life right now. There's this dryness. It's not easy to do the things that I need to do. It's almost like being in in a parched land. Things are dry. I'm overwhelmed by life. I'm anxious and I'm depressed. These are things that I continue to hear from people. And as I've shared, these are a season that I've been going through for about a year in my life now. As I've been talking with people, I'm, able, I'm right there with them going, yes, I understand. I know exactly how you feel. And so we've begun talking about how do we handle being stuck in one of those seasons? Because if you've been in one of those seasons, or perhaps are right now, it feels stuck. All momentum comes to a halt. Every step you take feels like it takes everything you have. And so what do we do when we're stuck in these places? This is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on as long as there has been people. King David in the Psalms writes about this often. He was in these dry seasons. He was stuck in these places And we have a lot of writing in the Psalms about it. I'm going to read Psalm 42 to us this morning to start this message. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart how I walked with many, leading to the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you in the land of Jordan, the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of my enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? 
Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. You, you can hear the turmoil and the confusion in David. He's going, what I know and how I feel are not matching up. He kept saying, I know that I will praise my God again. And I remember the times when I was leading the processions into his house with joy and with thanksgiving. Yet right now, I am so depressed. Right now, everything is so hard. It feels like everything that comes against me is overcoming me. But I know that I'm supposed to praise him, but I feel... And you can hear this battle taking place within King David. And for those of you that have experienced these times before, or again, are in them right now, you understand. What I know and what I feel are in conflict. And I'll be honest, every day I wake up and I'm not sure which one's going to win today. Is how many of us feel in this time. So last week, as we begun by kind of describing uh, what these seasons look and feel like, we ended by saying this, and I always want to major on this, being stuck doesn't mean you're less valuable. We have a very works-based mentality. In America, it's all about what you produce and how hard you work and how many hours and what you bring home. And we have this very works-based value system that many of us, when we're stuck in these places, go, I used to be valuable, and I'm hoping to kind of pick myself up by my bootstraps so that I can be valuable again. But we give in to this lie if we're not careful. When I'm stuck, I'm less valuable because I can't produce, because I can't participate. And so my value takes a dip. And last week we began saying, like, that is completely untrue. You are valuable because God says you are valuable, whether you're able to get out of bed today or not. So it starts with fighting this lie. Stuck doesn't mean less valuable. We looked at three causes for being stuck, kind of just very general causes. The first one I, I referred to as bucket-related issues. Uh, we talk about our energy buckets here in this church. That's some of the language that we use. Uh, there's a guy named Dan Scarrow who taught on it, and he said, we have a physical bucket, a spiritual bucket, a mental bucket, and an emotional bucket. They're full of energy, and as we go about our day, as we go about life, they begin to get emptied. And when they get too dangerously low, they begin to siphon energy from the other buckets until eventually all of life begins to grind to a halt. So a lot of these can be self-imposed things. We're going to look at it here in a little bit. Do we take care of ourselves in the right way? Do we restore that energy in those different buckets so that we can be in the place to receive from God and to be who he's called us to be? The second is desert times. Uh, we looked at Jesus, who on the day of his baptism, when the heavens opened up and God spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove and lands on him. And it's this amazing, miraculous moment. And the very next verse in Matthew says, and then the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan himself. And we go, whoa, 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 the spirit led him into that? Like, are you kidding me? But we said there are times that God leads us into these dry seasons, into these hard seasons, because in these seasons, we have the opportunity for hidden sins to be revealed and dealt with. And we have the opportunity to learn to depend on the promises of God. We love the mountaintops. It's easy on the mountaintops, but guess who I don't really need on the mountaintops? God. Because it's easy. Everything's just happening naturally. God promised that. I believe it. No problem. Then you hit the valley. Do I really believe it? it? These are opportunities that God himself at times leads us into so that we can learn what it is to be dependent on him. 
so that we can learn firsthand the goodness of God, even in difficult circumstances. The third cause for being stuck, sin and the enemy. Blatant sin will always lead to these dry, heavy, stuck times. It's the only road that they lead down, away from our Lord, the giver of life, and into stuck. We have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will take advantage of every opportunity he can to bring us down, to destroy us. And he will do everything he can to lead us into these times of stuck in hopes of tempting us to despair. Stuck doesn't mean less valuable. We, we said last week, it is not a sin to be stuck. Just being in that place where you're depressed, where you're anxious, where you're overwhelmed, does not mean you've sinned. But we did say, it's not God's desire for you to remain there. That doesn't mean just, oh, make a different choice today and all of a sudden you're out of it. I'm not trying to say that. But are we taking steps to move where God wants us to be? I want to look today, I want to start by looking at some natural tendencies when we're stuck. Some things that we naturally turn towards when we're stuck. The first is comfort sin. We turn to sins that offer comfort for us. And right now, I'm just going to kind of put a placeholder on it. Next week, that's what we're going to talk about, is these comfort sins. Sin has never looked so enticing as when you're in one of these dry and weary times. You start looking for anything that might offer a modicum of comfort. And we can fall into these comfort sins. The second natural tendency that I just want to touch on this morning is we tend to double down. And what I mean by that is we try the things that got us into the stuck place. We just try them harder thinking they'll get us out of the stuck place. We, we try things that haven't worked maybe for years. Maybe at one point in our life they, they were actually helpful but they've kind of stopped being effective and we just try them harder and more often. And we have to be so careful with this. God has given us things to do when we get stuck. We have to be so careful that we're not just trying our way just harder and more often. In keeping with last week, I want to read, Chris probably hates this, he has to follow with pictures. I'm gonna read another children's story to us. Why are you laughing? Oh, you guys are too good for kids' stories? Come on. This is actually one of my favorites. Uh, Chris, the pictures will come pretty quick, so just uh, stay with us as best you can. But it's a, it's a book called Stuck. And in this, I want you to notice the parallels. It's about a boy who gets his kite stuck in the tree, and I want you to watch the ways that he tries to solve the problem. As an outsider looking in, you're going to go, come on, Floyd. Notice the parallels. Stuck. It all began when Floyd's kite became stuck in a tree. He tried pulling and swinging, but it wouldn't come unstuck. The trouble really began when he threw his favorite shoe to knock the kite loose, and that got stuck too. So he threw up his other shoe to knock his favorite one, and unbelievably, that got stuck as well. In order to knock down his other shoe, Floyd fetched Mitch. Cats get stuck in trees all the time, but this was getting ridiculous. Floyd fetched a ladder. He was going to sort this out once and for all, and up he threw it. I'm sure you can guess what happened. The ladder was borrowed from his neighbor and would definitely need to be put back before anyone noticed, and in order to do so, Floyd flung a bucket of paint. 
And wouldn't you know it, the bucket of paint got stuck. Then Floyd tried a duck to knock down the bucket of paint, and a chair to knock down the duck, and his friend's bicycle to knock down the chair, the kitchen sink to knock down his friend's bicycle, Floyd's front door to knock down the kitchen sink, the family car to knock down the front door, the milkman to knock down the family car, an orangutan to knock down the milkman who surely had somewhere else to be, a small boat to knock down the orangutan, a big boat to knock down the small boat, a rhinoceros to knock down the big boat, a long distance truck to knock down the rhinoceros, the house across the street to knock down the long distance truck, Floyd is impressive, a lighthouse to knock down the house no longer across the street, a curious whale in the wrong place at the wrong time to knock down the lighthouse, and they all got stuck. A fire engine was passing and heard all the commotion, so the firemen stopped to see if they could help at all. And up they went. First the engine, followed by the firemen one by one. And there they stayed, stuck between the orangutan and one of the boats. Firemen would definitely be noticed missing, and Floyd knew he'd be in big trouble. Then he had an idea, and he went to find a saw. Chris, go to the next slide for me. It's the most brilliant one. I don't know if you can see. He has one of those light bulb idea things and then grabs it and throws it at the tree. He had an idea and he went to find a saw. He lined it up as best as he could and he hurled it up the tree. And that was it. There was no more room left in the tree and the kite came unstuck. Floyd was delighted. He had forgotten all about his kite and he put it to use immediately, enjoying the rest of his day very much. That night, Floyd fell asleep exhausted. Though before he did, he could have sworn there was something that he was forgetting. So, you read that book, and the point of that book is so that your children look at it and go, Floyd, that's not what those things are used for. Floyd, stop trying the same thing. It's not working. The problem is many of us, when we get in those stuck places, we look very similar to Floyd. If someone was on the outside looking in at our lives, they would go, Stop trying that, it's not working. Try something different. Oftentimes we get stuck and we just start doubling down, running into the same wall again and again. Thanks be to God who doesn't just leave us in this place alone. God has given us tools to help get unstuck. And I wanna share some of those with you this morning. We have six tools that we're gonna to look at. We're gonna move through most of them pretty quickly. We'll camp out on a few. The first, uh, way that we should handle being stuck is what I call restoration work. So all of you, if we have your email address here at this church, 27 minutes ago, you got an email into your inbox uh, that says bucket worksheet. Those buckets that we talk about, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, these energy levels that we have to keep maintained if we're going to be in a position to be the people that God has called us to be, uh, there's a worksheet that takes about 15 to 30 minutes, something like that, and it just helps you get a handle on where am I actually in each of these areas, and what are some very specific things, not that everyone can do that, but me specifically, that I can do to help, if I'm at a four out of 10 in one of these, how can I bump it up to a five this week? What are some very practical things that I can do? Not because, hey, if you do these things, I promise you, you'll get out of this stuck place, no but it does help you be in a position so that when the Lord begins to move in those places, you're ready to move with him. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So I'm not gonna spend a ton of time there because the worksheet does a pretty good job of explaining itself. So that's in your email and I would challenge you, again, anywhere from like 15 to 30 minutes. Take some time and just work through it. Really practical, gives you some really good next steps. So doing restoration work to restore the energy that gets depleted as we just go through life. As we get beat up, as we serve other people, those buckets get emptied, we have to do the work of restoring it. Number two, another one I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on because we just spent four weeks on it. You have to fight for community. One of the things that happens when we get stuck is we tend to isolate. We tend to pull back because no one understands, because I'm already in my pajamas, and to go out, are you kidding me? Because it's raining, I know it's Sunday, but uh, it just gets harder and harder, and we must fight for community. We were all made to function inside of healthy relationships. And there's this downward spiral that happens when we get stuck in one of these places. It becomes hard to hang out with people, so we don't hang out with people. So it becomes even harder to hang out with people, so we hang out even less. And down and down and down it goes until eventually we're trying to dig ourselves out of a pit with no one there to help us. We were created for these healthy relationships, and especially when you're stuck, you have to fight for them because they will not come naturally. It's so much easier to just sit on the couch. But then the problem is the next day, it's even easier to sit on the couch. And then the couch isn't even comfortable. It's even easier to lay in bed. And on and on it goes. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We were made for community, but especially in these stuck times, we have to fight for it. It will be hard work. It will be the hardest thing you did on that day, but it will also be one of the most rewarding. Don't give up on gathering together, Hebrews chapter 10. But encourage one another. In those times, we need the encouragement of brothers and sisters. We need people that are going to help pick us up off the ground. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We have to do restoration work. We have to fight for community. We have to learn to ask how instead of why. Here's the thing. When you're in one of these stuck places, when you're in a difficult time, why is not a useful question. This one's not from the Bible. This one's just from me. Why is not a useful question. We were never promised an answer to the question why. Why did they do this? Why am I like this? Why am I in this place? We ask those questions, typically with very little answer, and God never promised that he would give us an answer for that. But the question how is far more beneficial. Here's what I mean by how. Let's look at Romans 8, a passage many of us know. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, even in the hard times, God is at work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Why am I in this place, God? I might not get an answer. God, how are you using this for my good? How are you using this to get me back on purpose with you? That is a promise that he has made, and that is an answer he will give. Here is what I am doing in your life. It might not be you ask it and he answers that moment, but God delights in showing us, here's how I'm using this to make you more like me. Here's how I'm using even this difficult time for your good. 
we have to put down the question why. It's just not that helpful. We think if we just understood the reason behind it, all of a sudden it would get easier. Nothing would change. But when we ask how, and God begins to open our eyes to the ways that he is moving, all of a sudden the lens through which we view the entire situation changes. We must learn to ask how instead of why. The fourth one, we're going to camp out on this one for a little bit. We have to hold on to God's promises. When we're in those stuck times is when God's promises are the most powerful. And if we're not careful, sometimes the most elusive, the hardest to really lay hold of. Rob Reamer in his book, Soul Care, says this, renewing your mind with truth is not a passive activity. For years, I have heard people misquote or only partially quote Jesus. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The assumption is that if we only know the truth, we will experience freedom. But knowledge doesn't produce freedom. And that isn't what Jesus said. Look closer at what Jesus actually said in John 8, 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's an if-then promise. If we hold to the teaching, then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. It isn't knowing the truth that, uh, it isn't in knowing the truth that freedom comes. It is in holding on to the truth that we are set free. Amen. So let me ask this question. This is one of those times where I want us to talk together. What's the difference between knowing God's promises and holding on to God's promises? It seems like a subtle difference, but it is vast, the difference between the two. What's the difference between knowing God's promises and holding on to God's promises? The, the difference between knowing someone and knowing of someone. I can know of someone from a distance without ever actually putting any real weight on that relationship. But when I actually know someone, it's now personal. It's, it's a part of my life. Okay? What else? What's the difference between knowing and holding on to? Ooh, it's a race. I love it. Yes. Sometimes the moment by moment choice. That's the day, Lord, regardless of what's going on around me yeah. or in front of me, I'm choosing. Yes. To, to know is what she's saying. To know is, is a passive thing. I don't actually have to do anything. I just kind of know that that's true. But to actually hold on to it is an active. I'm choosing to believe this today in my current situation. It's applied, not just head knowledge kind of stuff. Sure. Hannah, what were you going to say? Yeah, knowing is that knowing of like, I, I know that someone said this thing. I don't even have to agree with them. I just know they said it. But that holding on is I'm choosing to agree with it. Heidi, was there your hand up? Yeah, I've heard um, it be described like leaning the weight of your life yeah. against the promises of God. So right. This is what I'm banking everything on. Right. I uh, live or die by these promises. Right. 
yeah, the, one of the way that I've heard it described before in, in talking about faith, which, which go hand in hand with this, is like this stool, for instance. I can know this stool can hold my weight. Like, I, I know the facts. It's made of wood. Wood is pretty strong. Have I ever actually sat in it? No. What if it falls? I know that it's true, but not until I actually put cheeks on wood do I really have faith that it's true. Does that make sense? <laughs> I saw some of these, and they might have just been shaking your head at saying cheeks on wood. But anybody else? Difference between knowing the promises and holding on to the promises. Yeah. We know we know it practically. Like we can know that water is good for us. If we only think that we drink water. Like you know, it doesn't matter right. if we know that it's good for us and we never drink water. I know I need to exercise. Amen. <laughs> Guess what though? Just knowing that ain't making much of a difference. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Until I actually put my weight on it, until I actually live as if it's true. I'm not holding on to it. Many of us have tried this. When we're in these stuck times, we memorize a verse and we repeat it back to ourselves again and again and again because then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But it doesn't work. We don't experience freedom. We memorize the verse, which is a good thing. It's a starting point. But we don't actually notice any freedom because we don't come to the point of going, okay, I have that verse memorized. If it's true, what would my life look like today? If what God said is true, how would I respond to that person today? If what God says is true, how am I going to work today, love my family today? I mean, all of these things. It would begin to change the way that we actually lived life. That is holding on to the promises of God. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I want to I stop here real quick and make a couple cautions about the promises of God, or more about our approach to the promises of God. First, God's promises are for God's people. Uh, I don't say this harshly at all, but if you're in here this morning and you're kind of trying to figure out, like, is this faith for me? You're, you're beginning on the journey, but you're like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not really sold yet. I'm trying to figure it out. Keep coming. These promises can be for you. But access to the promises come after submission to the king. Oftentimes, these are kind of thrown out as platitudes because Jesus has been painted as just this good teacher. And so if people would just do the things he said, you know, life will be better, which there can be some truth. There's some principles that are just good no matter what that are found in the scripture. But when it comes to receiving the promises of God, the fulfilled promises of God, that's for his people. There's no shortcuts. You don't get peace without Jesus. People say, well, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Yes, his people can. The question is, are you one of his people? Until we have come and surrendered our life to the king, bent our knee to the king, we don't have access to the promises of the kingdom. So I want to just make that very clear. If there's anyone in here today, again, just investigating, trying to figure this thing out. It has to start with submission to the king. I repent and confess of my sin. 
Your blood covers it, washes me white as snow. And now my life is your life. When we have come to that point, we have access to the promises of God. And not until then. Another caution as we approach the the promises of God. Make sure they're actually from the word of God. There's a lot of cliche that gets thrown around that isn't actually in the Bible. I, I mentioned this one last week. God helps those who help themselves. Guess where that's not found? In the Bible. It's actually contrary to what the scriptures teach. God helps those who rely on him. God helps those who submit to his leading. Not God help those who get 90% of the way there and just need a boost for the last 10%. But you hear this all the time as if like, well, yeah, that's God promised. If I just start working real hard, he'll help me. He didn't promise that. I've heard, uh, I may have shared this before too. Someone talked to me one time and they were like, well, it's like that story in the Bible of the ant and the grasshopper. You know, and I was like, I think that was Aesop. Um, And they're like, no, 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 I think it's in the Proverbs somewhere. It does sound like something Solomon would say, but it's not actually in there. I'm not even saying it's got bad principles in it. But there's a lot of things that get thrown around and just kind of in churchy circles. And so people assume that they're from the scriptures. Be very careful. You're not putting weight on a promise God didn't make. Make sense? Okay. This last one, it's a little controversial. Be careful with Old Testament promises. The Old Testament was written to a specific people in a specific time in specific situations. The promises that God was making were to a specific people in a specific time in specific situations. The way that God dealt with his people in the Old Testament is different from the way he deals with us in the New Testament. And we have to be careful that we're not trying to import some Old Testament values into the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We can learn from this promise that God made to Old Testament Israel, the heart of God. Not to crush people, but but to bring people hope and freedom. To prosper people, yes? We, We agree that that is the heart of God, yes? Here's the difference. When they read the word prosper, what did that mean to an Old Testament Jewish person? There was no no hyper-spiritualization to it. It was financially prosper. Your nation will become wealthy and safe. God was nation-building back then, and so the promises he made were earthly promises, for the most part. They had an earthly meaning to them. When they heard prosper, they weren't spiritualizing it and going, and then we'll have peace and joy He meant financially. Your businesses will start doing good again. Your crops will start growing again. If my people would just pray, then I would turn to me and pray, then I would heal their land. We say that one a lot, right? And we spiritualize it. But really what he was saying is I will literally heal your land. Your land is not producing crops right now because I broke it. But if you would turn to me, then I would heal your land and your crops would start growing. And we start to kind of spiritualize some of these but we only do that to a point. Many who lean too heavy on Old Testament promises, they still have that blessing means healthy, fat, and rich. They, they, they say things, they'll use Jeremiah 29, 11 to say, well, I didn't get the job I wanted. It means God has a better one for me. And what do they mean by better? Making more money. 
that's not the promises that we have in the kingdom. We actually, there's actually more promises about suffering than there is about financial wealth in the New Testament. Far more. We have to be careful that we're not importing Old Testament values into the New Testament. Old Testament means old promises, old covenant. New Testament means new covenant, new promises. There's a, a good book about this. Again, it's kind of controversial, but it's, it's helped me a lot. It's uh, called Irresistible uh, by a pastor named Andy Stanley, where he talks about some of the dangers in this. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, theirs being the old covenant, the law, the, the, the promises God made to ancient Judaism. Jesus' ministry has received, uh, the, excuse me, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. The writer of Hebrews was going, stop looking back to what God told them he'd do. We have even better promises. We have even more valuable promises. We don't need to go back and try to like wrestle these ones into the new covenant. Again, can we learn about the heart of God from these things? Can we read the Old Testament and see stories of just incredible faith being lived out? Yes. But be careful that we're not resting on old and, according to the writer of Hebrews, inferior promises. We've been given new promises in the kingdom of God. So just hold Old Testament promises lightly. We really have to ask, what does it mean? In Jeremiah 29, 11, the verse right before it, another promise God made is he said, I'm sending you into exile for 70 years. But don't worry, for I know the plans I have for you. So if we're going to claim the promise, we've got to claim the whole thing. 70 years is a long time. We've got to stop reading this over our college kids. They're going to be dead before the 70 years gets over. We have better promises. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. We can talk more about that one if you're interested. I would love to have that conversation. So let's take a look at some of the promises, the new covenant promises that we're called to hold on to. Ones like this, James chapter one, we know this well. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. When you're in those stuck times and you're looking for a promise to hold on to, here's a great one. When you face trials of many kinds, when life is just hard, consider it joy. Why? Because God is testing your faith and producing perseverance. And this perseverance makes you mature, not lacking anything. If you're going, but I just don't know what way to turn. I lack wisdom. Another promise. God gives to all generously without finding fault. He's never going to go, come on, dummy. You could have figured this out. Why are you still here? Why'd you throw the saw up the tree, Floyd? God's never going to ask that question. He's going to go, I'm so glad you came. Watch this. And he begins to pour out wisdom on us. These are the promises that we have, that we're never alone in these times. Again, not why is this happening, but God, how are you working? You're bringing about perseverance and maturity. You're pouring out wisdom and you are never judging me along the way. Those are promises we need to hold on to. Romans 5, along the same lines, 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Again, in difficult times, they're even able to glory in their sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Another translation says, hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I am not alone in any step of this, even in my deepest sufferings, because God has put his Holy Spirit in me and is working to perfect me. To produce perseverance, character, and a hope that will never disappoint. God, how are you working in this this desert time, in this difficult time? Where are you building in me perseverance? Where are you trying to make my character stronger, more like yours, so that I lack nothing, so that I have hope? Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As long as I have breath in my body and Jesus hasn't returned yet, he is still with me, and working. Paul, speaking to those going through difficult times, later in Philippians is where he tells them, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Because they were facing difficulties, and he's going, here's the one thing I know in all of this. I'm sure of it. That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day that he comes back. As long as you have breath in your body, he is with you, working and moving, completing what he started in you. You are not alone in any of this. If that doesn't make it easier to get out of bed in the morning. We have to find those specific promises to battle specific lies, specific trials, and even specific emotions. The enemy is going to try to play on those emotions and get us to be led around by the nose by how I feel today. And he's going to be, no, 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 no. The thing that leads is if this is what God promised, then I'm going to live as if it's true whether I feel like it or not. Number five, we have to keep our confessions current. This is another fun one. I think that confession has become a lost art for many in the church. Confession is that thing that we know the word, but like I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people that go, yeah, but how do you even do it? And like what, it's become kind of this mystical thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, German pastor and theologian who understood what it was to be hard-pressed. He stood up against Hitler himself and was imprisoned and martyred for his faith. Here's what he had to say about confession. He says, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. You can hear the sarcasm there. We're unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sin builds up a barrier between us and our God. So that we can't see his face and he won't hear our prayers. Like this is a, whew, we should stop and take note here. Sin builds up a barrier between us and God. And in our sin... Until we come to the point of confession, we will naturally hide. We feel like we have to. Because you have to be good enough to be a part of this group, right? Jesus came for all the healthy, and oh no, I'm sick now. That's not what he said, by the way, in case you were wondering. Jesus said the doctor came for the sick, not for the healthy. 
but we've flipped it on its head, in, not necessarily in this church, but in Western church culture, and said, you got to look the part, you got to act the part, or else you're not welcome here. And so when we fall into sin, there's that I have to hide it mentality. No one can find out because they might be horrified. Those are all the saints over there, and I can't be a sinner among saints, can I? We are all sinners, every one of us. We have all this week done sin so gross, we are terrified to share it with people. If they knew what I was thinking when that happened to me, if they heard what I said to my children, to my spouse, if my boss actually knew what I was thinking, and on and on and on the list goes, and we've lost a rich tradition of Christian confession, that this used to be one of the things that identified us as followers of Jesus, was our willingness to come and confess our sin, not so that we could be publicly shamed, so that we could be free of shame. This is what's keeping some in this room stuck. You're, you're walking in sin and you feel so ashamed of it, no one can ever know. You've already made that, that pledge in your heart. No one can know. No one can find out. You will remain stuck as long as that is the case. We have to recover our rich tradition of confession. 1 John 1, we've read this verse a lot over the past couple years. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we will walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive it. That's a promise we can hold on to. No matter how gross you think your sin is, no matter how far outside the pale you think your sin is, his promise is that it's already been covered. Bring it to me and be free of it, he would say. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John Ortberg, pastor and author, he says this. Sometimes people wonder, if I'm a Christian and God has already forgiven me, why should I have to confess? This is looking at confession the wrong way. Confession is not primarily something God has us do because he needs it. God is not clutching tightly to his mercy as if we need to pry it from his fingers like a child's last cookie. We need to confess in order to be healed and to be changed. God's not up there going, I need your confessions. And if you don't, it somehow hurts him. He's saying, you need to confess because this is a weight you cannot carry. If you're ever going to be healed, if you're ever going to throw off the chains, you must confess your sin. Many are stuck in this room because we have sin that we've yet to confess. An unconfessed sin is chains that bind you and hold you back. Again, David, who was familiar with the way that we feel in these seasons that we go through, David was also familiar with unconfessed sin. In his sin with Bathsheba, where he committed adultery with her, he had her husband killed, and he's trying to cover all of this stuff up. Here's what David has to say coming out of that season. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. David was going, man, I've been there. I hid it as best I could. And even before anyone found out, though they always find out, it crushed me. My body, his, even his physical body was in agony because he had unconfessed sin. And the conviction of the Lord was so heavy on him because the Lord is so kind to do that that he finally came to the point where he said, I, I have to be free of it. I will confess my sin to the Lord and you took away the guilt of my sin. First John, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have to keep our, our confessions current if we're going to get out of these stuck places. Finally, the last one, we have to choose to worship. Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews was writing, and as he gets to this part of the book at the end, he starts kind of naming some really difficult things that are happening in the world around them. In Hebrews chapter 11, many of us know it, it's called the Hall of Faith. And he starts going through about all these people that went through difficult times but were faithful in the midst of it. And he goes through Adam and Jacob and on down through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like some of these stories that we hear when we go, whoa, their faith was crazy, even in difficult times. But then he goes, hey, but some people even you know are imprisoned to this day. They're being fed to lions. They're being sawn in two. They're being martyred for their faith. He was writing to an audience that understood we're in difficult times. So he gets to chapter 12, and he starts to talk to them about enduring. He says, throw off the sin and everything that so easily entangles you so that you can run the race. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, because things are hard, and we have to endure. And then he gets to chapter 13, and he says this, therefore, through him, being Jesus, continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Why is it a sacrifice of praise? Because he's talking to people where it doesn't feel good. He's talking to people that are feeling crushed by the weight of culture and for them, very real persecution. And he says, in these times, one of the most important things we can do is offer to God a sacrifice of praise. It's one thing to praise when everything just feels good. Again, we love those mountaintop times and it, the songs are just coming and the prayers are just coming. But when we're in those stuck times, when we're in those dark, heavy times, his challenge to those people is especially in these times, offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that confess his name, even when it doesn't feel like it. I think of Peter in the storm, gets out of the boat, and again, you know the story, the waves, the lightning is crashing everywhere. And as long as Peter has his eyes on Jesus, what can he do? Walk on water. What happens when he takes his eyes off Jesus? He puts them on the waves around him, on his circumstance, and he begins to sink. Through worship, we keep our eyes on Jesus. God, no matter how things feel, we, we sang a song, blessed be your name, in the good times and even in the bad times. Whether it's sunny days or whether it's wind and rain, blessed be your name because you are still good. I will keep my eyes fixed on you. Psalm 42, which we read earlier, where David is, is, is wrestling 
my thoughts and my, my feelings don't match what I know and like this battle taking place. And there's this refrain that he repeated twice there and he actually repeats again in Psalm 43. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? But listen to how he talks to himself. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. David, in the midst of this confusing, stuck time, and this is him speaking to himself. I don't know why I'm depressed. I don't know why there's all this turmoil within me. But listen, David, put your hope in God. You will still praise him. He is your Savior and your God. David is, nowadays we would say he's preaching the gospel to himself and going, whether you feel like it or not, God is worthy of praise. And the best thing you can do in this time is choose to praise him. Again, not a promise that if you do that, everything will be fixed, no problem. But in these times, in the wind and the waves, we have to keep our eyes fixed on him. He is still worthy of praise. Whether we understand how he's working yet or not, whether we've been delivered from it or not, don't write God a check he can cash later. God, if you deliver me from this, I'll praise you. That's not how he works. God, I will praise you because even if you don't deliver me from this, you're still worthy of it. This is the heart of the faithful. If we're going to be in a position to receive what God gives us when we're in those places, when he decides to give them, we have to begin to follow these steps. We have to do that restoration work in ourselves. We have to fight for community. We've got to stop wasting our time asking the question, why? Hold on to his promises. Confess our sins. And choose to worship. Offer him those sacrifices of praise. Let me say, as, as I go through these, if there was one of them in there that kind of stuck a little more than the others, you went, ooh, I kind of wish he would have left that one off the list. You know what I'm saying? If there was one that felt like that to you, that's probably where you need to start. The one you're most scared to lean into is probably the one that will bring you the most freedom. Let me pray for you. You know, bag that. Let me pray for all of us. Lord Jesus, whether we are in the midst of good days or bad, we need you. All of these things, all of these six steps are still true, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the deepest valley. God, wherever we need to start, I pray that you would be very clear. We're not all going to tackle all six of these this week. Like, what's the one step you want us to take? What's the one step, God, that will help us fix our eyes back on you where they clearly belong? That will begin to, to restore hope that does not disappoint in us. That will give us the wisdom that we need to take whatever step you're leading us in. Lord Jesus, would you be gracious to us? None of us deserve your kind hand on our lives, but God, we ask for it anyway. For those that are in here today, that are just in the throes of depression. God, that have been stuck in this place for a long time and kind of maybe even forgot what hope sounds like. Would you be gracious to us? Would you give us eyes to see how you're using this for our good and for your kingdom purpose? God, would you give us the strength to take even just one more step? Because you are good and you are worth it. May we have perseverance and character and maturity and hope, all of the things you're trying to work in us. May we partner with you in it, as tired as we are, 
trusting that you'll give us everything we need. So just be glorified in this, I pray, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.